This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On March 10th, 1919, Charles Cortemiglia, his wife Rosie, and their two-year-old daughter Mary were attacked by the Axeman of New Orleans. Their daughter died from her wounds, and the Axeman, who was never caught or identified, would strike many more times. If you enjoy the episode you're about to hear and want to listen to more true crime events from history, check out our series Today in True Crime. You can find new episodes every day. Follow Today in True Crime free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today is Tuesday, March 10th, 2020. On this day in 1919, Italian immigrants Charles Cortemiglia, his wife Rose, and their two-year-old daughter Mary were brutally attacked by an intruder. The bloody assault was one of the first crimes of a phantom killer whose murders remain unsolved to this day. The Axeman of New Orleans. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Today we're covering the mysterious attack of the Cortemiglia family in Gretna, Louisiana, just outside of New Orleans. But before we dive into the investigation, let's go back to the early morning hours of March 10th, 1919, just after midnight. Sixty-nine-year-old Iorlando Giordano laid half awake next to his wife in their small feather bed, struggling to lull himself to sleep. This was typical for Iorlando. His rheumatism kept him up night after night. Just as he drifted off, his aching joints would tug him back to consciousness. But it was a small price to pay. After all, he was an old man now. He was lucky to be alive, to be strong enough to still be working in his small grocer's shop. Lucky to have his wife, his children. Iorlando shifted in bed, desperate to get comfortable. As he closed his eyes again, he listened to his wife's breathing. He tried to match her deep inhales and slow exhales, the rhythm of her breath. And soon, 
he drifted off. A woman's blood-curdling scream pierced through Orlando's dreams. He bolted upright, heart pounding. The screaming continued, ripping through the night. As Orlando's wife began to stir, he finally made out words from the woman's panicked cries. Over and over, she wailed, The Cortimiglias are dead! The Cortimiglias are dead! Orlando flew to his feet and raced down the staircase to his grocer's shop below. The Cortimiglias were the Giordano's neighbors. They lived across the way on 2nd Street, where they ran a grocery store of their own. Like Orlando, they were immigrants, Italian. And though Orlando didn't like fighting with his own people, he'd been in a feud with the Cortimiglias for some time now. They were rivals with competing shops, and they'd recently been to court for a business dispute. But my God, he would never have wanted them dead. By the time Orlando made it downstairs, his 17-year-old son Frank was right behind him. Frank may have been nearly a man, but in that moment, he looked like a little boy. He stood wide-eyed and alert, his hair still mussed from sleep, shirt unbuttoned. Orlando didn't need to hear him say it to understand. Frank was coming with. Without a word, father and son put on their shoes and rushed outside. Flooded with adrenaline, Orlando's body no longer ached. He moved with the speed of a young man as he ran across the cobblestone street. Outside the Cortimiglias, the screaming woman and a few others stood before the open door. But she wasn't screaming anymore. Instead, they all stood silent, shocked as they stared into the house. Orlando cut through the small crowd with Frank on his heels and stepped inside. As soon as he entered, he wished he'd never brought his son. The room was drenched in red. The walls were splashed with crimson, and a heavy scent lingered, damp and metallic. On the floor, Charles Cortimiglia lay in a pool of his own blood, gasping for breath. Orlando ran to him, cradling the bleeding man's head in his arms. At first, Orlando thought that Rosie, his wife, was missing, but then he saw her, standing slumped against a wall near the door. Blood matted her dark hair and ran down her neck. In her arms, she clutched her two-year-old daughter, Mary. The toddler laid limp in her arms, her tiny dress soaked in red. Then Rosie began to wail, her baby. Her baby was dead. Coming up, the investigation into the attack on the Cortimiglias pulls Orlando and Frank Giordano into a nightmare of their own. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... 
the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the early morning hours of March 10, 1919, Italian immigrants Charles Cortemiglia and his wife Rose were brutally attacked in their sleep, their two-year-old daughter Mary killed. They were found by their neighbors, 69-year-old Iorlando Giordano and his 17-year-old son Frank, in their Gretna, Louisiana home, wounded and bloodied. Once Iorlando overcame the shock of the horrific scene, he and the gathered neighbors summoned a doctor and the police. Charles and Rose were rushed to the nearby Charity Hospital. There, they were treated for serious skull fractures. But for little Mary, it was far too late. It was determined that she'd been murdered from a blow to the back of her neck while still sleeping in her mother's arms. And it didn't take long for police to uncover the murder weapon. On the Cortemiglia's back porch, they found an axe, still bloodied. Later, it was identified as the same one Charles kept inside his grocery shop. The killer had murdered Charles' daughter with his own tools. But stranger still, police found nothing was missing from the house itself. This wasn't an ordinary case of home burglary. This phantom intruder had broken in with the sole purpose to kill. Soon police identified how the man snuck inside. A panel from the back door had been chiseled away to create an opening just large enough for him to slip through. But besides the axe and the broken door, authorities found nothing useful. The murderer didn't leave a trace, and the Cortemiglias themselves were little help. Both Charles and Rose were in a deep sleep when the attacker struck, and in the cover of night, their bedroom was far too dark for them to identify the Axeman. Police Chief Peter Leeson and Sheriff Louis Marrero were at a loss. While Charles and Rose recovered in the hospital from their wounds and from the trauma of their daughter's death, investigators continued to push them for details. But the Cortemiglias still had no answers. So, frustrated and desperate, the authorities created their own. As soon as Rose was released from the hospital, Sheriff Louis Marrero had her arrested on the basis that she was a material witness to the case and jailed. Knowing that the couple had a feud with their rival grocer and neighbors, police attempted to lead Rose into implicating the Giordanos. She was incarcerated for days as Chief Leeson and Sheriff Marrero tried to coerce her into signing an affidavit formally accusing Frank and Iorlando of the attack. And soon, Rose gave in. In reality, the accusation was impossible. 
Iorlando, at 69, was frail and in ill health, hardly capable of swinging an axe, let alone assaulting two able-bodied adults. And his son, Frank, at six feet tall and over 200 pounds, would have never fit through the opening in the door the intruder had used to break in. But nevertheless, charges were brought and a trial ensued. Not a single scrap of evidence implicated the Giordanos, besides Rose's forced affidavit, and yet both father and son were found guilty after a trial lasting less than a week. Seventeen-year-old Frank was sentenced to death by hanging, and 69-year-old Irlando to life in prison a true miscarriage of justice. Until nine months later, when Rose Cortemiglia had a vision. She claimed St. Joseph came to her in a dream and urged her to tell the truth about her accusations. And so Rose marched into the office of the local Times-Picayune newspaper and retracted her statement, revealing how the police coerced her into signing the affidavit. Her announcement was circulated in papers across New Orleans, and soon after, in December of 1920, Frank and Irlando were released. All charges dropped. While Frank and Irlando's names were cleared, in that same paper, the Cortemiglia's true phantom killer emerged from the shadows. The attacker sent an anonymous letter to the Times-Picayune, taunting the police. He wrote, They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. After his attack on the Cortemiglia family, the New Orleans Axeman continued to torment the Crescent City, murdering four more people in neighboring towns, his methods and victims always the same. And ultimately, his prediction came true. The New Orleans police never did catch him. In April 1921, the Axeman simply disappeared. Now, almost a century later, he remains a mystery. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For more stories like this, check out ParCast Original, Unsolved Murders. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime.
Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Alex Garland, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 